Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Howdy everybody, CJ here, your Gorilla Scholar Warrior and Renaissance Man in this new dark age. And I've got a really cool episode, a great conversation with a very interesting guy to share with you. So my guest in this podcast is Clifton Duncan, who, if you're not familiar with him, uh, for now I'll just say he is a classically trained and award-winning actor whose resume includes major roles on Broadway, things like that. And he, um, I guess a year or so ago, walked away from the world of New York theater and Broadway and all that stuff. But anyway, I won't give you any more details now. He'll tell you in his own words uh, in our conversation his story. But he has a really interesting perspective as an insider in that part of showbiz, as an accomplished actor into what that world is like and some of its problems and, you know, why things like fiction and plays and movies and so forth matter. So I really enjoyed talking with him. I think it's a great conversation and you'll really enjoy it. And also, by the way, as a bonus, let me just say that Clifton has just one of the most pleasant, enjoyable voices I have ever heard. I think it's just the perfect combination of nature and nurture. You know, he's gifted with a resonant baritone voice, but of course his training as an actor and so forth, he has cultivated it and knows how to play it like an instrument. So, you know, I have listeners compliment my voice sometimes when I meet people in person at events or whatever. I've actually had multiple people be like, oh, I really like your voice. I, I find it, you know, very often I'll get comments like soothing or smooth or whatever like that. It's kind of middle of the road in terms of timber. It's not super high or super low, but Clifton definitely gives me voice envy. And for a long time, I've said that if I ever make any sort of like a documentary film, my number one pick to be the narrator is Keith David. But I'll say that Clifton Duncan is neck and neck with him. Uh, in my book, as a choice to narrate a documentary or something like that. But before I flip it over to our conversation, I do have another batch of awesome individuals to thank. These are another 20 names of folks who kicked in at least 25 bucks, if not more, to my Indiegogo campaign, thus earning a shout out on an episode. And uh, as I say when I do these, you know, I just go with first and last name as it appears in the Indiegogo list of contributors. And, and you know, in some cases, it's like an email handle in place of the name or whatever. But um, I do my best as far as pronunciation goes. Please don't be offended if I mispronounce your name or whatever. So big thanks from me go to Christopher Collins, Sean McEwen, Donanick Spicker, Adam Thorson, 
Joseph Specht, Daniel McCarthy, Tim Raven44, Jake Emrick, Matthew Keck, John Larch, Kent Reichel, Van Hardman, Sean O'Dwyer, Christopher Wielden, Michael Kober, Paul Allison, Stephen Snyder, Eliza Hutt, Bob Bellevue, and Kyle Money. Thank you all very much for chipping into the Indiegogo. By the way, I didn't even realize this, but the Indiegogo campaign is still live. So if you want to chip in, get any of the perks that are there and help me out. And of course, as always, please consider signing up to support me at Patreon or Subscribestar as well. Links to all these things will be in the show notes. But there are still four spots on the Indiegogo campaign to earn yourself a custom full-sized DHP episode, as well as still nine spots available if you would like to commission your own custom fun size, meaning under one hour long DHP episode. Also, by the way, looking ahead, I've got my next general DHP live stream on Thursday, November 17th at 7.30 p.m., and that is open to people that chipped in at least $200 to the Indiegogo campaign, which again, is still live as of this recording. And that live stream will also be open to those who contribute $15 a month or more via either Patreon or Subscribestar. In addition to that, I have scheduled the next DHP Book Club Zoom call for Tuesday, November 29th, also at 7.30 p.m. And we are discussing a very interesting and, I believe, underappreciated sci-fi book with some pretty uh, serious libertarian themes in it. And if you want to find out what that book is and you want to be part of the discussion of it in a few weeks, to get access to that, you can either throw in 500 to the Indiegogo campaign and you'll get a DHP book club meetings for a year. Or you can sign up via Patreon or Subscribestar for 50 bucks a month or more, and then you'll get access to the DHP book club, you know, as long as you keep contributing that amount. So anyway, that does it for housekeeping for this episode. I'm going to turn it over to my conversation with Clifton. And uh, just one last thing is I could not resist the urge to open with a bit of a dad joke for which Clifton was a good sport. But I found that more and more I'm just shameless when it comes to things like dad jokes. And I guess it's because, you know, I'm 41 now, so I'm not just 40, I'm over 40. I've moved from the 40 and over group into the just over 40 group. And uh, this year, the same year that I turned 41, is also the first year of having both my kids be teenagers, because near the beginning of this year, my younger child turned 13. So right now and for the next few years, I have two teenage kids. So if you're over 40 and have a couple of teenage kids, like you can make all the dad jokes you want and be shameless about it. That's my theory. Anyway, enough yammering on from me. Let me turn it over to my conversation with Clifton Duncan.
Clifton, it's really cool to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks, CJ. Appreciate you having me on. And also um, not uh, doing video because I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much a hot mess today. <laughs> yeah, I know the feeling. Well, like I said to you, um, you know, corresponding online, uh, I, I first got tipped off to you um, when you were on the Tom Wood show a while back. Um, and then I ran into some of the stuff you've been doing on YouTube and, um, you know, like some of your, your YouTube episodes talking to people I've been following for a while now, like uh, Critical Drinker and um, Nerdrotic, right? Uh, Gary from Nerdrotic. And I was like, man, this this guy is, uh, is really interesting, has a really cool inside perspective um, into a lot of aspects of show business and whatever. So um, if you wouldn't mind to start off with, could you give us, and uh, pardon the pun, but could you give us the Cliff's Notes uh, uh-huh. version of kind of your backstory, uh, your your career arc, um, and and sort of how you got to be uh, where you're at now. So, and but by the way, if you ever do write an autobiography, and uh, you know, title it Cliff's Notes, uh, feel free to to you know just give me a shout in the acknowledgments, and that's good enough. But anyway, uh, you've been rehearsing that, haven't you? Yeah, my name is uh, Clifton uh, Duncan. I um, as a kid, uh, I really dabbled in mostly music and illustration and a little bit of short fiction. But then I did my first play at age sixteen, and um, uh, I guess uh, I never. I always say the uh, the acting bug never really bit me. Um, you know, I I just sort of fell into it and kept getting cast in shows uh, in college. And um, like I was going to go to Savannah College of Art and Design actually to study illustration. And uh, then it was much cheaper to go to um, Virginia Commonwealth University in state uh, for theater school. And um, once I got there, I got a lot of encouragement from my professors. So whenever you hear people. Um, say that the industry is racist. Uh, just know that uh, someone like myself was encouraged. And to be fair, most people are not encouraged to go into the industry, even by people who are in the industry, uh, for very good reason. In fact, the, the biggest pushback I got was from my late grandmother, um, who urged me to be to have some sort of a plan B until she saw me on stage in my first professional show um, in Richmond. And uh, afterwards she said, uh, you go on, baby, you go on and, and be, and be an actor, but just don't, don't you, you need to be will, uh, you need to be a Denzel Washington. Don't, don't be like that. Will Smith. Cause he's a, he's a clown, um, <laughs> and a, a, a very uh, violent clown as we come to uh, find out. But, yeah. uh, but uh, I finished, uh, I got my BFA um, in theater at uh, VCU, another, which is a uh, useless degree. Um, I, I, um, was in DC for a while, kind of couch crashing and sleeping in the back of my car and getting, uh, getting in shows. And then I put all my eggs into one basket and I applied to the, um, New York university's graduate acting program uh, at the Tisch school of the arts, uh, not to be confused with their undergraduate program, which is like 400 people or something ridiculous like that. Um, NYU grad program. Um, it's a, it's one of the top three conservatories, or at least it was, um, you know, I don't hear great things about it now, but uh, some of the alumni, you'll know, um, Michael C. Hall from Dexter, um, uh, Deborah Messing, everyone's favorite actor, um, uh, Dan Sanjata, Daniel Day Kim from Lost um, in Hawaii Five-0, Sterling K. Brown, Mahershala Ali, uh, Denai Gurira from uh, the Black Panther movies and Walking Dead. Um, lots and lots of great people uh, went to the school. And so that's where I went. And um, I got out in 2009 in the midst of the recession, and I pretty much worked my way up the ranks. I um, 
you know, did lots of what's called regional theater uh, across the United States um, in many of the nation's top theaters. And then finally, my agents begged me to stay in New York. And um, I began working off Broadway and then eventually broke onto Broadway in a play called The Play That Goes Wrong, which literally is what it is. Um, co-produced by J.J. Abrams, who's a pretty cool dude. Um, I, I, end, I ended up injuring my back um, and having to leave and had to leave the show. But uh, he sent me some uh, some nice cookies and on, on his stationery and a nice warm note. Uh, so I have a, a soft spot in my uh, in my heart for Mr. Abrams, even though a lot of people uh, don't right now. But uh, after that, um, things just began to go upward, onward and upward. Um, I broke into more television work. Um, I began to accrue award nominations for the work that I was doing. Um, if anyone wants to go and do some Googling, you can find uh, receipts um, slash reviews dating back 20 years or so in various publications from the Washington Post to the LA Times to the New York Times several times where I have, um, you know, standout notices. Uh, so um, it always makes me laugh when um, I encounter people on Twitter who say, you know, well, you, you probably just couldn't get work because you're not good. And I'm like, well, no, literally, <laughs> literally, uh, you know, here's my IMDb page. Here's my um, here's my theatrical credits. It's all there. And um, so pretty much that's my training background. Um, I did everything from uh, from Shakespearean tragedy to musical comedy. Um, I made my Broadway debut, as I mentioned before, in a British slapstick comedy, full on accent and everything. Um, I built a diverse body of work that I'm, that I'm very, very proud of. And um, I had no reason to believe that uh, things would uh, would stop. But then uh, 2020 happened and the and the um, pandemic um, unfolded. And um, now I'm no longer allowed to be in the industry at all because I decided I did not want to take a particular medical product, which we will politely refer to as a vaccine. So up until recently, I was um, back to waiting tables at nearly 40 years old uh, for the first time in nearly two decades. Normally, um, you wait tables until you make it. Um, I did the exact reverse. I, I made it and then I had to go back to waiting table. So that's pretty much my story and where things stand right now. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. So I've, I've heard you say things that, that make me think, and you can, you can correct me if I'm, I'm misunderstanding. I don't want to put words in your mouth or anything, but that you were kind of already starting to get a bit disillusioned with the industry you were in because of the, for lack of a better term, the kind of like wokeism, you know, going off the rails in, in recent years, even, even, you know, for the few years before uh, COVID hit. Mm. Is is that right? Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely reached a point. So I was based in New York City um, for, you know, I, that's that's where I, you know, I had, a, I had a colleague who said I should have gone out to L.A. and suffered for a few years and I got a bunch of TV credits and money and then then going to Broadway. But um, yeah, you know, I, I, I began and I can't quite pinpoint when it was, um, but there, there there came a point where I began to feel very. 
I suppose, alienated from a lot of the community. Um, it started because I would, I would see all these shows and, um, you know, we, actors very, you know, very competitive and very bitchy. And, you know, we always have our thoughts and opinions about different things. Um, but what you would often see, what people need to understand is that a lot of, um, popular shows, a lot of popular actors. And we can see this now that we're in the era of, you know, social media and YouTube commentators or whatever, um, you know, Rotten Tomatoes and all these kinds of things where the professional critics that are within the machine are saying one thing. There's a huge machine. Uh, I mean, it, it, stars are pretty much built, um, on, on the back of this, on the wings, I should say of this publicity machine. Um, I mean, there was a point where I had an agent and a manager and a publicist and, your publicist is the one who, you know, gets you appearances at different red carpet events, uh, you know, stuff like uh, announcing who the Oscar nominees are, um, getting you features in different magazines and interviews and stuff like that. And so you see this machine kind of working. Um, and that's what creates um, uh, <laughs> that's what creates the stars. Now, it's not as much about their appeal or, or their their talents, but. You know, but I, I began to see a lot of these shows and I would go to them and uh, I'd be like, yeah, it's, I don't see what the big deal is. Um, and increasingly on top of that, um, there were just the, the content themselves. I just, it didn't really interest me or engage me at all. Now, my training background is in, you know, stuff like Shakespeare, um, Chekhov, um, you know, Greek tragedy, those kinds of things. Um, these sort of timeless works uh, of um, of the uh, masters, although you can't say the word master anymore because that means uh, you're you're invoking slavery. And um, you know, I just began to get this feeling that a lot of the shows were being produced um, for to cater to the whims and sensibilities of a largely white, largely um, affluent, um, largely older. I won't say largely older, but a largely white, largely affluent uh, sort of bourgeois crowd. And then they would say, you know, how come we're having, you know, they, they say we want to do shows and we want to have audiences that reflect the world as it is today. But they're not thinking about, you know, the the Latino um, courier who's, you know, delivering mail to their theater. They're not thinking about the black security guard who, uh, you know, who's sitting by the door, making sure that the actors are safe when they're, you know, when they're coming into and out of the stage door, they're not thinking about the, um, you know, the, the business owners, um, at the little bodegas that, or souvenir shops that litter, uh, uh the theater district of Times Square. So they're, when they, when they're thinking of reflecting, um, the world of today, they're, what they're really saying is they want a world, uh, they're, they're looking for something that reflects, a very sort of quote unquote progressive vision of the world, which features a lot of people who look different, but think exactly the same. So in a nutshell, I began to feel as though they weren't making shows for a general audience. You know what I mean? I was like, they're making shows for themselves. I can't envision, you know, the, the conductors on the, on the subway coming to go see, you know, coming to see a Broadway show about, um, uh, about trans rights. And it's difficult because it's not that you want to denigrate someone's artistic expression and say that these stories don't deserve to be told. Um, it's just that if you're going to cater, you're catering to a specific niche. And for me, it just got kind of boring. Um, every once in a while, you know, you have a breakout hit like a Book of Mormon uh, by the South Park guys or Hamilton by, by, by Lin-Manuel uh, Miranda. And those kind of take things by storm, which is nice. But um, 
in general, I just began to feel like, uh, you know, this is sort of boring to me that, that this is cool to this, this, uh, bubble of quote unquote progressives or, or far leftists, but to a general audience, it's not so, so much great. Um, but on top of that, so as a, as a black actor, which is a term that I, I despise, by the way, uh, almost as much as like white rapper or strong woman. But as a black um, actor, you you know, especially after Trump got elected, um, I mean, people's brains just completely caved in on themselves. It was unbelievable to watch. But, you know, you get these you get these scripts. And I was fortunate uh, in that I got to audition a lot. There's a lot of actors who <laughs> get zero auditions um, for months on end. I was going out quite, uh, quite regularly. And, um, my manager, um, to her credit, uh, was brilliant in that she recognized what I brought to the table. And, uh, there were a lot of great casting directors in the city as well who also recognized, um, the, the sort of depth and, and scope of what I could do. And so I would get brought in for a lot of roles that weren't specifically written for a black, uh, man, but, you know, they would bring me in anyway because, you know, this guy's great and he can do this. Um, but, uh, you get these, these scripts that increasingly were just about, um, you know, like they're either race swapped or they would, um, they would have all these sort of talking points about uh, social justice, racial justice. And a lot of it was stuff that I just really didn't believe in. And, you know, I make the comparison often to Tyler Perry plays. Now people, you know, it's, it's fashionable to hate on Tyler Perry, but, um, you, you, you don't often meet people that have specific criticisms. And one of my criticisms of, of his work is that, you know, he, he, he speaks to a, a very Christian audience, a Christian black audience, right? And so oftentimes in his works, you will see that the plot begin to stop, the plot stop cold, um, so that the characters can, can begin preaching to Jesus. And so in these progressive, uh, works, you see many of the same things. So one example that I cite often is, um, the moment in Avengers Endgame, if, if anyone has seen it, where it's the clim- it's the climactic battle and Thanos and his troops are all over the field. All the superheroes are in the background kind of fighting. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, all the female characters, all the female superheroes at the same time get this slow-mo moment where, where they're like, you know, she has help. And I remember the audience, like half the audience kind of cheered for it. And half the audience kind of groaned. I mean, this is a packed theater in New York City, you know, at the premiere of one of the biggest, most anticipated sequels of all time. And, um, you know, it's just that, and I thought to myself, okay, but there's a, a huge sort of intergalactic <laughs> apocalyptic battle happening right now. Why are we stopping to have this sort of Yahoo moment? It just to- it totally kills the story. Or, you know, you see stories over and over again now that will kind of, you know, like the classic moment from, um, Falcon and Winter Soldier, where they're deliberately, they're explicitly preaching, you know, you need to do better. And it's stuff, and it's stuff like that you see over and over again. And then for me, I have, I have no interest in that. Um, I, I never got into acting to be any kind of activist. I just, I got into acting because I wanted to transform and I enjoy being on stage. And, um, you know, I want to play lots of great, uh, great roles. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I could, I could keep going on and on about this. Um, and the, I mean, as a man, um, it's an, it's a very anti-male industry. So I began to see more and more roles where I felt as though I had to sort of, uh, neuter and emasculate myself in order to be more palatable, just to, just to be exist in rehearsal rooms and in rehearsal studios. 
And the scripts would come along as well where, you know, I mean, I'm, so I'm six foot three and, um, and in really good shape, um, from weight training. And I would get these scripts where, you know, my character would be ex special forces or Marines or, you know, with all kinds of combat training. And it wouldn't be like a superhero film or science fiction, but I would still read in these scripts where somehow I lost a fight to some five foot three, 115 pound, um, waifish actress. And, you know, over time, I mean, one of the paradoxes about what we do, right. Is that, um, if you, if you're lying to your, I mean, we, so the definition of acting, right. You're, you're living truthfully under fictional circumstances. And, um, the irony of that is that, um, the, the more divorced you are from your true self, your authentic self, the more difficult it becomes to access whatever those feelings, whatever your true authentic emotions uh, are um, in service of a character um, on screen, if that makes sense at all. So if you're if you're continually lying to yourself and, um, you know, in your life, then you're, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of killing your soul and your, in your artistic experience and you're, you're cutting off access to the deepest parts of yourself over time. You're eroding your greatest, um, your greatest asset as a performer. And I can see it, you know, actors who sort of are on the same page as I am, there's a deadness behind their eyes. Um, but they want to keep working. You know, they need to pay rent and get insurance weeks, but, um, you know, but they're, they're deathly afraid of saying anything. Um, so, I mean, there, there's a lot of aspects that go into it racially, uh, gender wise, that uh, I just began to become sort of um, turned off by things. I, I was lucky. I kept finding really great roles that were a fit for me and really great projects just based off of the work that I was doing and, and word of mouth and my relationships and reputation. But, you know, it, it, I turned a lot of stuff down because or a lot of auditions down because I was like, this is just like if I if I. If I am on this show for, you know, the, the series for seven years, am I going to sit here? Am I going to want to show up to set every day and have to argue with other actors and with the writers and with producers and with the director about some random line that's inserted about George Floyd or whatever the, you know, the, the racial animus is of the day? Or am I going to have to sit here and, and, and tuck my dick between my legs so that my female co-stars and the female writers, um, you know, don't get offended. I mean, I've been in those situations. I mean, you, you just, it's, it's a really toxic environment. So that's an extraordinarily long winded way of answering your question about, um, you know, I just began to feel sort of, I just, I kind of learned to shut up and I was doing the very thing that I was talking about where I was just sort of um, burying everything and uh, just kind of going along to get along and things are going really well for me um, as a result. But um, yeah, before all the COVID stuff hit, um, you know, it was, it was already for me becoming a little bit, um, a little bit difficult to navigate the waters. And then after Trump got elected, I mean, it was just like everything was on steroids. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge worthy drama is back along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Yeah, it's amazing how many people's brains were broken by Trump and then broken again by COVID. And um, I, I can tell you that 
you know, it's it's very interesting to hear an insider's perspective because you know, obviously, when it when it comes to showbiz, I'm just a a viewer, a, a customer, a, a consumer, a fan, or used to be a fan before things uh, got so crappy lately. But um, it, it's it's so interesting your story. How many parallels there are to the world I was in for a long time, which is academia, which I recently left. Oh yeah, it's it's very similar in a lot of ways. Where I mean, there's rigid ideological conformity. There's you know, all, all kinds of, of weird um, politics in, in every sense of the word, not just in the literal sense of the word. But anyway, wh- what do you think it is? I, I mean, in a way, I understand the ide- ideological conformity in academia because I'm familiar with the history of like when academia became kind of professionalized and cartelized at the turn of the last century. Like, for example, most of the the uh, professional academic associations that still exist to this day were founded during that so-called progressive era, you know, progressivism of like Woodrow Wilson and people like that. And um, so like the American Historical Association, the American Economics Association, et cetera. And those are all founded by explicitly progressive ideologues at the turn of the last century. And so I kind of understand how and why academia tends to be so ideologically, you know, monolithic and conformist. But with things like the world of acting and, and arts and entertainment and these sort of things, like these are supposed to be creative people. These are supposed to be people like more likely to be eccentric. These are supposed to be the people that, um, you know, are nonconformists. They're supposed to be the ones that question everything. And yet, particularly the last few years, they've been at least as ideologically conformist as, as academics, if not even more so. And I mean, it's, it's really disturbing to me personally to see how many, like I, I used to be, I still kind of am, but I used to be a fan of, of lots of punk rock when I was growing up. And it was really disturbing to see how many punk rockers like come out and, and say, Oh, Hey, you want to be a cool, uh, rebellious, badass punk rocker? Go get your, uh, go get your Pfizer vax, right? Do what big pharma tells you to do what CNN tells you to do, you know, what the establishment tells you to like, what, what, I don't know, as, as a, as someone who comes out of that world, do you have any, any kind of a theory or explanation as to how these people that supposedly are creative nonconformist types are, are so like rigidly conformist really? Yeah. I mean, I think on one hand, um, I mean, I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out myself because for, for my, to my mind, I mean, there, it's, I mean, you know, I was talking to a friend, um, who was at conservatory. She was a year ahead of me at conservatory. I was talking to her, um, a few weeks ago and there's an actress that we both know who came out of the same elite conservatory who, from what I understand is, is pretty Republican, but she will say nothing publicly, um, because she wants to protect what she has. And to my mind, um, there's, it, it it says it doesn't speak kindly of the kinds of people in the industry, the kinds of industry that's been created, where you have people who are afraid to speak out about, um, not even speak out, but just share their share a differing uh, socio political or political perspective um, for fear of reprisal. Um, years ago, Andrew Breitbart, who was somebody that I never thought that I would be quoting, but, uh, you know, he did this interview for, I think, the Hoover Institution. Um, and it's really riveting if people want to go watch it. But he talks about how people in the entertainment industry, uh, you know, apparently there are quite a few more conservative leaning people. 
I mean, there's one group, I won't mention the name of it. You're not allowed to say it. It's sort of, sort of like fight club, you know? Um, but if you, but if you mention it, um, I mean, they, they, I mean, it's an invite only, um, club and they say explicitly, like, don't talk about it. Don't name any members, yada, yada, yada. Why? Because if, if it's, if they're outed, then they risk losing work in their careers. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, Mark Ruffalo or Jim Carrey can say all the dumb things they want about socialism. I've worked on set with people who are openly socialistic, but I don't think they should be barred from working. It, I mean, you, you know, your political beliefs don't have anything to do with with your ability to connect in a scene with me, to hit all the right notes, to do the choreography, to learn your text and build a character. You know, if if you're fun to work with, you're open, you're spontaneous, you're gifted, you work hard, you're fun to be around. I don't care who you vote for. I mean, you know, I'm I say all the time I can I self-identify as a liberal atheist. I don't care if my uh, scene partners are, you know, Christian, Mus uh, Christian conservatives or, or Muslim conservatives or whatever. It just doesn't make, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, or, or communists. I don't care. You know, they, I, 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 I don't think they should be barred or blacklisted from working just because of their political opinions. Um, no matter how disgusted by them I may be. Um, so, so to go back to your question, I think one, one theory that I have is that, um, you know, it's a, it's a pragmatic it's a, a pragmatic decision on behalf of many more conservative-minded people. A career in the arts um, is not a is a very challenging thing. It's not very stable. Um, so, if you're someone who has this idea in their head, um, this is why I don't begrudge uh, you know more uh, more conservative-leaning people um, for staying out of the game. Uh, but you know, it's when you don't know when your next job, where your next job is coming from, you don't know, you know, if you're going to have health insurance, uh, you know, in, in a few weeks. Um, if you're someone who has this idea of, well, I need to get a house. I want a wife. I don't want kids. I want a stable career and job and a family. You know, that, it, it, that is possible in the entertainment industry, but it's like playing the lottery, essentially. Only it costs a lot more money and takes a lot more time and, and energy. And we're basically all at the casino. And so if I'm a more conservative minded person who has, um, who has these kind, sort of life goals in mind, um, of course I'm going to stay away from, uh, you know, the acting profession because it's just so unpredictable and there's so much that's out of your control. And if you're a more self-determined person, a more entrepreneurial person, it's really not, it's really not a profession for you unless you want to produce your own work and write your own work, which takes, uh, an enormous amount of work. I mean, um, any, any film, any, any, um, theatrical production, uh, takes a lot of organization, um, to pull off. So on one hand, there's, there's the pragmatism of it. On another hand, uh, you know, I think the kinds of people that are attracted to these sorts of, um, professions says a lot. I think that uh, you have a lot of, there's a line in the musical Chicago, which is a really great show, by the way. Um, but one of the most well-known numbers in the show, I think the song is called Roxy Hart. And she has this uh, great punchline. It always gets a laugh where um, she basically says that, uh, you know, our, my, your mother didn't hug you enough or love you enough. And so that's why I'm in showbiz. And everyone understands what that means. You have a bunch of people who um, are kind of starved for attention they're attention whores they're they're kind of broken or damaged in some way that they, they suffer and i mean i think there is something to be said um the same for stand-up comedians you know people who have some uh, i was listening to um 
listening to a clip of uh, Patrice O'Neill the other day, and he had this great term called scars on your soul. So a lot of people have scars on their soul and, and they're kind of outcast they're kind of weirdos. And, you know, I know for myself, you know, I was a military brat. My life was completely up, uh, uprooted every three to four years. And I, I always kind of was a weirdo and marched to the beat of my own drum and kind of nerdy. And once I started hanging out with the theater kids, I mean, I knew I didn't want to be in an office somewhere. I knew I wasn't going to be a policeman or a firefighter or a doctor. I mean, I knew that when I was a kid, I didn't know what I was going to be, but I knew um, I, I had a very strong sense that um, the sort of nine to five desk job life just really wasn't going to be for me. I don't know how I knew that, but I knew it. So then, you know, I'm around all these theater people and show people. And I'm like, okay, well, these people are even weirder than I am. So I kind of felt right at home. Um, now, again, if you're a more conservative minded person or a conservative leaning person socially um, or politically, um, you might be put off by um, all the people dancing around and, you know, making references, um, frequent and constant references to musical theater songs. Um, it might kind of put you off a little bit. Um, but the thing is, all those weird theater kids in high school. They're the people that become the next generation of movie stars, writers, producers, directors, et cetera, et cetera. So you have the pragmatism of um, that on one hand, keeping people out of the industry. You have the sort of kinds of people who are um, attracted to this uh, to this industry. Um, and then I think the third aspect is, you know, the, the concept of the default liberal. Right. Um, I know when I sort of had my quote unquote red pilling in around 2014 or so. Um, one thing that really stru uh, struck me is that I didn't even know that there was another way to think, right? So you come up in, I mean, I came up in the public education system. You watch the news, you watch your favorite sitcoms, your favorite performers, um, athletes, stars, or whatever. Um, and each, you know, and each of these people are reflecting one, especially if you're black, right? It's, um, you get one specific, um, as Thomas Sowell would say, vision of the world reflected back to you. And, Part of that vision uh, is that uh, anyone who leans right, anyone who is a Republican or Libertarian or whatever, um, is evil. They're bad. They don't care about poor people. They don't care about minorities. They don't. They, you know, they hate women, so on and so forth. They're a bunch of Bible thumping, gun toting, uh, freedom loving rednecks, and um, and that's just what it is. And then you get into situations where. Uh, you know, if you, this, this sort of, this view on things is so pervasive and so strong. I mean, you know, it's, it's never really challenged. And then, you know, so then you add the, you know, more conservative leaning people kind of getting, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Due to their pragmatism, uh, not entering the game, you have this sort of weird collection of people that, that come together and this weird collection of people has this particular worldview that's been kind of kind of pumped into their brains from when they were very little, you know, and so you have people who have a very strong need for community and connection, right? Because that's kind of what we are as artists. We're very open people. Um, we ostensibly open people. I'll say that I'll, I'll use that caveat and very needy people, um, you know, for being quite honest as well. And so you need these sort of connections and community. Um, and on top of that, in the industry itself, um, at a certain point, I mean, talent is maybe like third or fourth on the list of, of things that, that, um, that create a, a long and fruitful career in show business, right? I mean, a lot of it is timing and luck. People don't like to, people don't like to admit that. But as, as I, as I said before, it is sort of a casino, but there's timing, there's luck, but there's also reputation and relationships. And if you have the wrong opinion, uh, about anything, you know, if you challenge uh, any tenets of feminism or if you say, yeah, I don't know about this whole climate uh, climate crisis stuff, 
um, I don't really support Black Lives Matter, then that's going to damage your relationships. That's going to damage your uh, reputations. And I have been on the receiving end of phone calls from, you know, prospective directors who say, you know, I heard you worked with this actor. What was that like? <laughs> I've uh, gotten people um, canceled, so to speak, people's job opportunities, not because of their political opinions, but just because they were just really shitty at their jobs. I'm like, you know, don't hire this person. Um, but, you know, people talk. And especially as an actor, you don't want to be seen as difficult, quote unquote. Um, you know, you you need to have a positive reputation um, in order to continue. And um, in an industry built largely on relationships with a bunch of with a bunch of needy people, insecure people, you know, nobody wants to fall out of line. You know what I mean? Nobody wants to fall out of step. Everybody wants to. Um, belong because once you're in, once you're in the machine, once you're in the beast, and this is where I was, this is where I'd gotten to, you know, once you're in that circle of like Broadway performers, that sort of community, I mean, it's a really cool, cool place to be. I mean, I had a billboard with my picture on it, uh, right in the middle of Times Square. Um, you know, you, you, you learn where all the, all, all the bars, all the actors go and, you know, you, you're walking up and down the street, um, on Eighth Avenue in the theater district, uh, between, shows between matinees on the weekends and, and, and uh, seeing all your friends who are stars who are like, you know, or, you know, tone nominees or whatever that are in their own shows. And you're like, Hey, what's going on, man? What's going on? You know, it's a great community to be a part of. And I, I feel torn oftentimes because it's really easy on for someone on the outside to say, look at all these woke, crazy assholes. But outside of that, these are genuinely charismatic, um, warm, um, oftentimes very gifted and, and interesting people. You know, and why, you know, and if you're around all these kinds of people and you have this level of status, right? Because, and you've worked your ass off to get there because, uh, it's a very competitive industry. And, um, any, any job, any singular job is a miracle, but a career is, is even more of a miracle. And a big career is like, you know, a, a one in a million kind of a thing, right? So if you've worked all your life to get to this, this point and you're at a, you know, I mean, the Broadway minimum salary, is um last I checked was like twenty five hundred dollars. That that's if you're just some random person in the chorus. If you're a star of the musical, you're making, you know, five, six, seven, um, ten, you know, or more per week. Um, I think, you know, stars like Bette Midler, you know, they're getting like six figures a week in these sorts of shows. So, you know, and if you if you land a um, a series regular role or a lead role in a series, I mean I, I tested for a I screen tested for one show, a Fox comedy that I think never went anywhere. But um you know, after the test, my agent negotiated this deal where had I gotten the job, I would have been making $30,000 per episode. That's $30,000 a week, um, you know, minus uh, commissions and taxes and all that stuff. That's life-changing money. Why on earth would you jeopardize any of that by saying out loud, like, yeah, you know, I don't think Trump is racist. No one's going to do that. No one's going to do that. So it's complicated. There's a lot that goes on. Um, it doesn't help that uh, from the top, right? Um, what's get, what, what is getting greenlit? What's getting written? What's being produced? You know, it, it's an entire machine that's sort of built for keeping certain kinds of uh, people uh, out, certain kinds of opinions and viewpoints suppressed. You know, so if, if there is a working theory, I mean, it's, it's a very complicated uh, issue. But uh, yeah, to me, it's just very strange because I'm someone who's always been a smart ass. I've always been sort of irreverent, um, acerbic in my sense of humor. Um, I love comedians. I love listening to comedians just kind of rip on each other and just joke about things that you shouldn't be joking about. And for me, I'm like, dude, we're artists. You know what I mean? We're supposed to be kind of, like you said, kind of funky and eccentric and kind of... um 
on the margins of things. And, you know, we're not, we're not supposed to be conformists. And yet now the artists of today have become some of the strictest and most vicious conformists and, and rigid enforcers of this particular ideology that, uh, that I've ever seen. And it's nothing new, by the way. It's nothing new. That's, that's the thing about it as well. Uh, I reference this essay all the time, but way back in 1943, I think it was, um, a man named Albert Maltz, a writer who's basically a communist, <laughs> he wrote this uh, essay called What Shall We Ask of Writers? And so 75 years ago, he's writing about how rigid left-wing ideology, right, is stifling creative um, creative uh, expression. It's stifling critical culture, uh, meaning that if you if your show happens to appeal to the you know to the political um, winds of that particular time, that it'll get praised. If it does not, then it'll get panned. We're we're seeing the same things happen today. You know, Netflix's Punisher comes out and gets and gets a critical drubbing because of all the violence and guns, right? You know, Bruce Willis's uh, Death Wish um, reboot or whatever gets panned because of all the guns and violence. So these things still happen today. And um, it's just, it's nothing new. Maybe it's just now we see it more, uh, more than we ever did. But um, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's tough. And I think partly last thing I'll say, and this is my beef with more right-leaning people is, you know, I think that they focus a lot. And again, it, it, it's born out of a, a deep rooted pragmatism. Okay. And I understand that, but it, you know, I think they focus a lot on things like economy and, 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 um, you know, policy, these kinds of things, which are, which I, as I said, are, are of course important. But, um, I think now they're beginning to realize how badly they've allowed the, um, the culture, so to speak, excuse me, the culture to get away from them because now it's become so infested by this one particular point of view. And that's why you have, you know, that's why you have, uh, movies like Buzz Lightyear. That, that's why you have all these franchises that are bombing right now from Lord of the Rings to Terminator to Star Wars and Star Trek because, um, they've, they sort of overlooked this stuff. And then they come turn around and complain and say, well, like, you know, the libs have taken over the arts. Well, I'm sorry. You know, I don't have much sympathy for you now. Um, because you thought we were just a bunch of weirdos and that how, and the arts aren't important. Um, you know, you say stuff to me derisively, like, you know, well, serve me my latte. So, you know, it's, it's, um, part of the problem. It's, it's a co-created problem, I guess. So that's my, another long-winded answer for you. Yeah. Well, I very much agree with, you know, your notion that, uh, the arts are really more deeply important to society than again, like you were saying, you know, a lot of people who tend to be more conservative, um, in the broad sense of the word, you know, not just politically, but as a personality type, because when you think about it, you know, when you're talking about like at the, at the deep archetypal, like Joseph Campbell type, Carl Jung type level, I mean, the, the arts are what form people's like gut level worldview to a large extent. And I, I would argue, and this is, this is why I think these things matter more. And this is why, you know, on a history podcast in recent years, I've been talking more and more about these sorts of, of questions because I think they matter more than most people realize who aren't paying attention because in my mind things like popular tv and movie franchises and characters things like uh, comic book heroes and whatever these are for our culture what the foundational myths and things were for ancient peoples and medieval peoples and whatever so to me it's like you know batman or or superman or spider-man or whatever are the equivalent of of hercules and, right. and people like that and so to go in there and and mangle and repurpose those things and vandalize them and you know insert all sorts of of 
you know, ideological baggage in there where it doesn't belong. Like it, it's, I think it's really fundamentally, you know, as a kid growing up in, in modern society, more of your worldview tends to get formed by movies and TV than by anything else. Right. And let, and let me cut in because I've, I, I have a couple of podcasts coming up uh, in the next couple of weeks that center around or that touch on one one touches on this subject, the other centers around it completely. Um, the, the, this idea of um, superheroes, for instance. Um, I spoke to a guy called um, um, R.J. Shaw, who has a, a YouTube channel called The Fourth Age, where he talks um, about heroes in the classical sense. And we talked about the deconstruction or the destruction, really, of the classical sort of masculine heroic ideal. And the thing about that is that, sure, you know, we can scoff at superheroes and say, oh, they're for kids, but that's the point, isn't it? We used as a touching off point um, the can the recent cancellation of um, this Superman uh, series uh, by a writer named Tom Taylor. And for people who don't know, um, the uh, the the Superman that most people know, the Clark Kent slash Kal-El, was sort of pushed to the wayside in favor of his son, John Kent who, you know, was outed as a bisexual and the story became about him being bisexual. And that, that's what all the publicity was about. And the book ended up getting canceled. And the writer was quoted as saying, and I'm paraphrasing, but quoted as saying, you know, we didn't want him to be, you know, going around punching people and all these kinds of things. And the thing is that, uh, you know, people will make fun of adults for commenting on, uh, you know, franchises like Marvel or, or Star Wars or whatever and say, well, it's made for kids. And like, it's like, well, yes, but when I was a kid, you know, I wanted to be, or I don't know if I wanted to be, but like I was inspired by Indiana Jones and Luke Skywalker and James Bond and all these kind of uh, awesome kind of heroes. And we had. Wait, wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. How could you have been inspired by them if, if uh, they don't look If they're like white. You? Yeah. I thought that's how it works. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, and Bruce Lee too. Don't, don't forget about him. So, you know, so what we talked about is. What happens is, and I spoke. Uh, I spoke to another woman. Spoke to another woman named Mary McDonald Lewis about this, and um, we all, so myself and R.J. and Mary, all came around to the same kind of conclusions, which is that once you begin to deconstruct or diminish these sort of classical ideals um, in in our modern storytelling in our modern myth making, you have young people now who can't distinguish, for instance, between what is good and what is evil. They don't know what a hero even looks like. They don't understand uh, prudence or virtue. Um, the, the, you know, they don't understand, um, you know, the, now everything is so much about um, like one of the things about the Superman book, the new Superman, the, the John Kent Superman was like, you know, he's more kind of passive, passive. And, um, you know, there's there's a sort of backing away from this idea of being strong and taking action. And um, do you really want to live? You have to ask yourselves, do you want to live in a society where the young people um, have no inspiration and, and ha have no idea what it is to uh, to be masculine who or not masculine, but but to take action, who have no idea what it means to be virtuous or prudent, to have no idea how to not just be strong for the for the sake of violence, but to be strong for the sake of defending others and fighting for what's right. And so what Mary said, which which stuck with me, is that. You know, what's happened now is that you have people who are creating these stories whose worldview and their sense of self is very small. So their stories are very small. And as a result, our society becomes very small because that's what we're absorbing right now. And um, so it just goes back to what all the things that you were saying. You know, I go back, you know, it's funny because I'm, I'm finally going back as, as an adult and reading 
all these great stories I should have read when I was younger. And just reading through um, like Homer's Odyssey, what an amazing adventure, you know, this call to action, this, this idea that, you know, I'm, I have to go on this, this epic journey to, to slay monsters and dragons and do all this. I mean, if I'm a, if I'm a, a little boy and I'm reading all of that, you know, I just, how could I not be moved or inspired by that? So it's, it's, it's not just about, oh, uh, it, it, this is for kids. It's like, yes, you know, I want my kids, um, you know, if and when I eventually have them to be inspired by these same kinds of stories. And we're not getting these kinds of things right now because a lot of our storytellers um, are possessed by this ideology that um, is more hell bent or more they, they prioritize. They prioritize their sort of ideological objectives over any kind of great work. And I don't think anything of, of lasting permanence or significance will be will will come out of this culture now. I mean, I, I just I can't think of anything that is being written right now that will be performing in 100 years the same way that we do or 200 years, the same way that we do like, you know, Chekhov's plays or Shakespeare's plays. You know, it's just um, maybe, maybe some writers, you know, I mean, Arthur Miller, or Eugene O'Neill or August Wilson later on, as far as playwrights go, um, there's some movies that um I mean, I think the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I mean, people have the, their issues with that, with those films, but I mean, they did, they did change movie history and, um, and towards the end of it, um, they, they sort of really elevated the superhero genre in a lot of ways. But, um, again, those stories, the reason those movies succeeded is because you had great superheroes, you know, operating on classical heroic ideals. So, um, and, and, but then you see like Endgame and what they did with Thor, for instance, the character of Thor. And, um, you know, I, I just was like, I don't, I have no desire to see and to see this character now because in the books that I've read, the Thor books that I've read, comics I've read, you know, he's wonderful because he's not this sort of high IQ brainy hero like, like Peter Parker or Tony Stark. Um, he can be brash and impulsive. Um, but he's kept in check. A, he, he has to be worthy and virtuous enough to be able to lift his magic hammer because he has a responsibility to his people. He has a duty to his people, the people of Asgard. And he's tireless and he always fights for what's right. And he's strong and he's courageous and he beds all the women. So, you know, it's like this great sort of masculine <laughs> character. And what did they do in Endgame? They made him fat and whiny and weepy. I mean, they, they had to destroy him because I, in my opinion, he was just too, he just represented too much. And guess what? You had a Captain Marvel that um, was supposed to be the new face of the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know, it just didn't work. And that's the kind of thing that you're going to deal with. You're going to have, a, a, you know, generations of kids who are going to see that. And um, they're not going to, they're not going to have any sort of great model of, uh, of, uh, of heroism um, and, and altruism to, to stand behind. And um you know, it, and it's one of those things where it's like, well, it doesn't really show up in hard statistics. So, you know, you can't have any conservative pundits talking about it and, and um, you know, and centering talking points around it. But it does have a social cost um, and we need to be more cognizant of what that is. Yeah, for sure. By the way, along those lines, I've, I've been also reading and in some cases rereading uh, a lot of, you know, older stories and things like that, both ancient and, you know, modern, but at least a few decades old. And I've, I've got to say too, if you want a couple of other good hero archetypes, examples of like the strong masculine character, somewhat similar along the lines of, of the way you were describing, you know, the proper Thor, definitely I would recommend anybody to check out who hasn't read them. Uh, first off, read the Conan stories by Robert E. Howard, the original mm. Conan 
stories. Those are, those are fantastic. I've been, I've been digging into those a lot lately. And then um, another one that's great are the uh, Mike Hammer stories by Mickey Spillane. It's like hard boiled crime. And I, I feel like Mike Hammer in the mid 20th century, Mike Hammer was a pretty well-known, you know, heroic fictional character. Like he was, you know, not quite up there with James Bond, but it was pretty, pretty well known. And I feel like he's, he's been kind of forgotten today, but man, mm. those, those Mickey Spillane stories of Mike Hammer that just, you know, strong, tough, uh, masculine heroic archetypes. You know, you know and I want to, I want to add as well. I mean, this came up in my conversation. Um, I did a podcast with Victor Davis Hanson, the, uh, the conservative classicist and historian. And he mentioned, um, Antigone, you know, as a, as a classical Greek heroine who, who was standing up in a society where, which was openly sexist, right? Um, so it's not just about men. It's not just about masculinity. Um, you know, it's about standing up for what's right and finding inner strength and, and, and heroism. So it's not just, we're not just being like, Oh, you know, boys, 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 you know, there's, there's, there's levels to this, as they say. So it's not just about, about guys. It's just, um, you know, I think we're just talking about uh, something to aspire to. I think that's the main thing that we're that we're centering around right now. Yeah, yeah, I've noticed that a lot of the the heroes in modern productions they're not they're not really heroes at all. They're they're sort of in a way more like victims slash Mary Sue's or Marty Stews. And one <laughs> of the things I realized um, in in my house, we mostly uh, at least when I'm around, we mostly only watch stuff that's at least ten, if not more, years old. And uh, I've noticed that in a lot of modern productions, even if it's nominally like a heroic type of a story, there's no longer the sense of the hero having to overcome hardships mm. and their own personal flaws and defects and having to learn new things and new skills. And so there's there's rarely ever the great mentor character anymore. You know, the Mr. Miyagi, mm. the the Dumbledore, you know, the Yoda, whatever. And then another thing that's missing from most modern heroic type stories is the montage scene. I've noticed that like, if you think back to a lot of great eighties and nineties movies that we all still love today, uh, very often there's at least one, if not more than one montage scene where the protagonist, you know, whether it's Daniel son learning karate or, you know, Luke getting instruction from Yoda or whatever, there's, there's those scenes. And, you know, very often in, in the eighties ones with the, with the cheesy synthesizer soundtrack right, right. by Kenny Loggins or whoever, um, but, but I, I feel like when we lost the montage from, from films, we lost something important because if you think about, um, a lot of the quote unquote heroes now, they just kind of get their powers or their right. skills or whatever, just intrinsically. And there's no sense of having to earn anything. And again, you know, talking about like young people, what lessons are you teaching them when they're no longer seeing the, the hero having to train or learn or study or improve themselves? Right. I mean, it's, it's really, it's really galling, isn't it? I mean, it's cause these months, I mean, I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm thinking about, uh, what was it? Was it Teen America, Team America world police where they had the, the spoof? Oh yeah. I love the, that song. Uh, <laughs> you need a montage. Um, but, uh, you know, but those montages are about two things, right? It's about struggle and it's about growth. And, um, you know, or, you know, you could say, you could say hardship and all these other things, but you know, by the end of it, it like the, the story becomes, it, it, I mean, it's, it's a great, storytelling device to kind of cover a lot of uh, a lot of time passage of time but the story is that this person really struggled and busted their ass and now they've they've leveled up um and and become 
this um, this better version of themselves. And um, again, this this came up in my conversation with R.J. Shaw the other day. You know, these modern heroes, um, you know, that like uh, the character Ironheart, who's supposed to be a replacement. This this young black girl who's supposed to be like the replacement for Tony Stark as Iron Man. You know, her her inciting incident, as it were, to become a superhero is being told that she's no Tony Stark. You know, and it's just. You know, who wants, who cares about that? You know, no one cares about that. You know, like, you know, Peter Parker, uh, you know, is sort of this put upon kid and he gets these superpowers, to, you know, totally by accident. Maybe, maybe it's fate. Who knows? But when he decides to say to not use those powers for good, he pays a very heavy price for it and loses his father figure. And that's, and he learns a lesson from that. Um, I mean, one of the things I learned about or, or, Gosh, uh, Spider-Man is at homecoming. Um, they sort of took the scene from, um, from the comics, the classic Spider-Man comics where, you know, you, you see Peter who's buried under this, all this heavy stone and rubble or whatever. And, um, I love the way that Tom Holland does this scene and the way they dramatize it. You know, he, he has to find something inside of himself to continue to, you know, to find the will to go on and to find an inner strength to lift, you know, to, to, you know, he's, 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 beaten up he's uh you know he's he's tired um he's in a bad he's in pretty bad shape he's at the end of his rope but he still finds a way to get on his own two feet and lift this 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 rubble off his um lift this uh this stuff off of him and continue on forward that's what we want to see right that's what we that's what we need to see we we want to see the struggle we want to see them triumph um over these obstacles because that's very life affirming to us but when you have people again and it's a reflection of the people who are making these stories who don't have any real struggles. I'm sorry. Most of them just don't. You know, sorry that, uh, you know, somebody misgendered you. I'm sorry that some, you felt like somebody microaggressed upon you. Um, I don't really give a shit. You know, people write something more epic that's outside of yourself and, um, and stop being so self-absorbed and maybe you'll do something that's worth, that's worth watching and then that won't get canceled or won't lose money for a production studio. Maybe try and think about that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, if you got time, I got one or two more things I, I would really love to ask you, if that's all right. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll try to be uh, brief. Okay. Um, the first one is, I, I'd be interested to hear your opinion. Do you think that we have sort of like reached peak, for lack of a better term, wokeness in in things like film and television um, and then the, the arts more broadly? Do you think we've reached the peak and, and maybe that's signified by things like um, She-Hulk and Amazon's Rings of Wokeness and and maybe things are starting to improve and maybe uh, the success of Maverick, the success of uh, Spider-Man No Way Home uh, last year are, are kind of portents that the audience is voting with their feet, voting with their dollars. And you can ignore that for a while if you're a giant company like Disney, but like you can't ignore it forever. So so what, what do you think? Do you think it's it's going to start getting better? in the near future or do you think it's still going to keep uh, going? It has been going. It's kind of tough to say. I mean, I do see some positive signs. I mean, there's a lot of um, buzz around what David Zasloff is doing over at Warner brothers right now. I mean, he canceled the Batwoman movie that was supposed to come out. I mean, the rumors about that film were that it was that, you know, it was just really not good at all. Um, so he, I mean, he pulled the plug on it. They, they dumped millions of dollars into this movie and um he ended up pulling the plug on that um because they want to focus on pro i mean it's kind of funny right we used to we used to lament that um hollywood was just sort of soulless and empty and all they cared about was money now i now i think we all kind of wish that they would go back to caring about making a bunch of money for sure um you know i i see some positive signs i mean obviously audiences now are really really rejecting these things um i think the um rings of power 
uh, was such a massive, massive um, failure for a lot of people and not just, you know, the sort of nerds on the Internet who talk about it all the time, like actual Tolkien fans and like normies are saying the show really sucks. And it's it's a big embarrassment for for Amazon. And like I said before, you know, She-Hulk, Rings of Power, uh, um, Star Trek, Star Wars, Doctor Who, um, I mean, upcoming Indiana Jones, the current Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, all these shows are all suffering from the same kinds of things. And I do think people are getting tired of it. I think it's, um, you know, we're, we're talking about the midterms coming up very shortly. Uh, you know, there's a lot of anger for a lot of reasons against these kinds of people and their and their ideology of, of pushing back. Um, the the I, I'm hesitant to to say rah rah sis boom ba just because again they're sort of in this bubble and they're insulated from um, the sort of. So I mentioned the publicity machine before, right? And what, and if you notice, like in response to Lord of the Rings, initially it was, well, look at all this racist backlash. So whenever something doesn't go well for these people, it's always a bunch of Nazis or they're racists or whatever. So they can tell themselves these things. Now, the executives, the bean counters, the investors, they might, or the shareholders, they might have a different perspective, but you know, the people on the ground who are making this stuff and green lighting, green lighting projects, you know, I don't know if they're as quite, they're quite as aware as they need to be. Another thing I would say, though, is that I think that that machine is becoming way, way, way less relevant now. Uh, we're not in an era anymore where people care about being celebrities or movie stars now. I mean, you know, I, I don't see young people saying that, um, you know, you know, idolizing celebrities. I see young people saying they want to be, you know, podcasters or TikTokers or YouTubers or whatever. Um, you, you know, however you might feel about that, the the broader point is that um, there's a big sort of decentralization going on in terms of entertainment and art and creativity. And now we have our smartphones and laptops and computers and other devices to and that we can gain access now to all kinds of people from different niches. And maybe you, you have a future where artists, um, independent artists, will kind of rule the roost. Um, you know, I mean, uh, maybe the entertainment industry will go the way of the music industry, where you have a lot of uh, independent artists who are producing work um, on their own. Um, I mean, I know for myself, it, it seems to be the most viable path. I mean, I, I, I do notice that um, in only two years, two short years, I built a following of um, uh, over 100,000 people um, and growing. Um, I, you know, that's more in two years than I did in 10 years in the industry. And... Um, and we also live in an era where people, you know, I can have an audience that spans the globe. I'm not, I don't just have to worry about appeasing a bunch of quote unquote progressives in New York and L.A., you know. Um, so I think I think the savvier people, the savvier artists. And here's the thing, too, because, again, they're in that bubble. So and this was years ago. Right. I, I, I had dreams for a long time of saying, like, you know, what if what if I could take what I do? And, and share it with the world and, you know, and make money off it on the internet, yada, yada, yada. Like just use my skills, right? Some people learn how to build houses. I learn how to build characters, right? And I sing, you know, I, I can, some, how can I find a way to reach more people with that? And that's what I'm doing now. Um, unwittingly so, but that's what I'm doing. And yet, you know, I remember an ex-girlfriend of mine was talking about, um, I mean, I had friends who would, who would complain and say, oh, I went and I had a screen test for this role, but they gave it to some girl who has like 2 million followers on Twitter. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that could be you, dumbass. You have, you're beautiful. You have the talent, you, the training, the, the charisma. That could be you. But they look down on these kinds of, on these kinds of things all the time. They, 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 they see that it's, it's beneath them, not understanding that, um, 
you know, you have a potential gateway now to reach way, way, way more people with whatever it is you do. Now, will you become a millionaire? Probably not. Maybe not. But you can definitely sustain yourself. You don't need to be, I don't need to pay, um, you know, I, I recorded an audio book recently. And um, one of the best things about it is that I didn't have to pay an agent, uh, a 10% commission on that. You know, they found me via my podcast. So, uh, you know, I have people reaching out to me, you know, to narrate different things. And, um, you know, I have people saying, you know, hey, do you want to, are you going to arrange a meetup for your fans or whatever, or your followers? And I'm like, uh, you know, I hadn't thought about that, but... If people are already asking me that, then that means I can begin to, you know, put together maybe a half an hour or maybe an hour of material, like singing or whatever, and have my own performing career um, without an agent and without, uh, you know. So there's there's a lot of possibilities that are available now that uh, where really truly um, enterprising and gifted people have a have a an avenue now where they can reach an audience directly without um, the sort of middleman of uh, of PR agents and and handlers and um you know this sort of big uh machine i can reach people directly now and they can pay me um and and be you know genuinely excited for what i do i mean i you know i got a message from um a lady who sent me like 2 bucks and she was like you know i'm on social security right now and this is all i really have but and that's really moving to me you know like i don't need people to come in and pay hundreds of dollars to come and see me in a show if you have two dollars and 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 you want to give it to me because you genuinely appreciate what I do, I love that, and I love that um, that we live in a world now where people can say, "Hey, I like you. I like what you do. I'm going to support you." Um, and here's a few bucks. And if you get enough people to do that, well, guess what? You have a pretty nice living for yourself, don't you? So it's um so we're entering sort of a brave, a brave new world. I mean, I don't want to use you know the the negative connotation to that, but um where. Sure, maybe things might be changing culturally. They that, that might trickle down to the business itself. But um, the thing is that the business itself is not uh, going to be as relevant going forward. I think as it was in the past. Yeah, there's some very interesting parallels to what what you just said there. To sort of like my arc uh, of of you know teaching history for all those years in like a conventional institutional classroom, and then eventually going going off the reservation, going rogue, and you know way more people listen to me talk about history stuff uh, around the world and voluntarily no one's forcing them to do it for a gen ed credit right. um, than, than when I was, you know, teaching a few dozen kids at a time in a, in a classroom. Um, well, the, the one other thing I wanted to ask you about uh, sort of selfishly, and you kind of already hit on some things related to this, but I'd be curious um, selfishly because uh, one of my children, uh, both of, both of my kids actually have done, you know, theater in school and, um, like to, to sing and, and, uh, perform and whatever. Uh, but one of, one of my kids in particular is, uh, like really, really keen on going into acting as a career. So just for, uh, for my own thing. kid and for anybody else, uh, listening who, ha- who might have uh, children or, or if, or if they're a young person themselves, uh, do you have any particular, Tips, suggestions, um, thoughts, whatever, as, as somebody who has, has been uh, through the machine that, that you would want to tell your younger self back at the beginning of, of your career or, you know, maybe prior to going to, to school for acting. Well, there's there's a couple of things. There's uh, there's the business aspect and then there's the um, the craft aspect. Um, as far as the craft goes, you need to be feeding yourself um, soul food. I call it soul food continuously. Read the old plays, read classic literature, study history, 
become very, very, very familiar and in depth. Um, it sounds like, you know, given your background, that's not going to be an issue, but, um, so the classic teachers like Stella Adler, Uda Hagen, look them up, get their books. Um, there's another one, um, who's, uh, more modern called Larry Moss, who wrote one of the best books on acting I think I've ever read called The Intent to Live. Um, but those teachers all stressed the importance of being educated and cultured. So, you know, you're, you're doing different, um, like I had, I had a teacher who once said that information is inspiration. So, you know, teach yourself how to do research and deep reading for different roles, but, but educate yourself as much as you can. And you have all the tools available that you can today. So what that does is it gives you a grounding, not only in like the great stories and what constitutes a really great story and like what really great characters are, but it also connects you to this idea that, um, you know, we are a part of a big human chain. And even though we have different technologies now, you know, customs, pardon me, customs change, um, mores change, um, cultures shift, they ebb and flow. Fundamentally, what motivates us as people has not changed for thousands and thousands of years. And you will find this if you read, you know, the classic Greek plays, Shakespeare plays, You'll if you read biographies from various periods. People are people. And the more you understand that, then you can take that, you can take that into your craft. And you can take that into your craft by saying, okay, this character is going through this, that, and a third. What does that mean for me? Uda Hagen said that, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a mistake to say you're trying to get lost in a character. No, you're trying to find yourself in a character. So if I'm playing Romeo, um, which I did very badly, uh, in, in my sophomore year of undergrad, you know, on the page, uh, you know, Romeo has this sort of flowery text or whatever, but you know, he begins the play, you know, he, he's heartbroken. Uh, the girl he liked, you know, it didn't, it hasn't really worked out and he's like depressed and he's kind of bummed and his friends trying to kind of, you know, help him out and, and, and cheer him up, uh, Benvolio, aka benevolent. And, um, then he, he sees Juliet at this, at this party. He meets this girl at this party, right? And he's, he's, instantly smitten now you know he's written to be like 14 15 years old i mean these are teenagers right um and or or if you're playing juliet you know what the, the the first scene that she's in she's arguing she's arguing with her mom because her mom's trying to set her up uh, to get married and she dares to defy her mother and she's like well i don't know if i like this guy and um you know so you see these conflicts with parents you see these these sort of um these young love impulses that are all there in the text you just have to be smart enough and understanding enough to 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 realize that yeah even though these stories are hundreds of years old they could they could still be about me and so what is it like for myself to be you know to if you're preparing a role you know to to have that that young love and and to be angry at my mom and want her to get out of my get out of my hair and to to, to be embarrassed talking about boys, these kinds of things, you know what I mean? So you, you, you educate yourself and, and you, you gain all that knowledge about others because you, and you gain more knowledge about yourself. Uh, as far as yourself, take care of your body, take care of your mind and your body. You know, you don't have to go to the gym and like, you know, be a power lifter, but have some kind of physical discipline. All the classic acting texts, like reject all this fat acceptance bullshit. I'll say, I'll tell you that right now. That's going to not serve you in the long run at all. So people pay money, right? To come to see you in the theater. Um, they want, you need to be appealing to look at because you are being seen. Okay. And don't be ashamed of that. If you got, if you hit the genetic lottery, that's cool, but take care of yourself. Make sure that you're attractive. 
You know, you're going to feel good about yourself. It's going to translate to, uh, and the, and an audience will pick up on that. They're, they're going to, because you, you want to be looked at and, um, and you have to be sort of, um, not embarrassed by that. So take care of your body, um, feed your mind, um, work on your craft. You know, then then there's a business aspect, which is really difficult. Um, if you're a young woman, um, your youth and your beauty are going to be assets. It, It just is what it is. It goes back to what I was saying. It's sort of an economics thing. People will pay money, men and women to see attractive people. And if you're a young woman, you know, that, that is your coin. The thing is though, if all you have is your looks, then as soon as those fade, you're going to go away. Um, so that's why you have actors like Alfre Woodard, who's one of my favorites, right? It's black woman. Um, CCH Pounder is another black woman. Viola Davis. I mean, Viola Davis is a Juilliard trained actress. Uh, you know, I, I saw her on stage when I was like 17 years, like over 20 years ago. And, um, she's been in the game for a really long time. She has an extraordinary craft and she's, you know, she's tall. She's got this great dark skin, this big voice, aka take care of your voice as well. You know, learn how to use it, learn what your, you learn what different resonance, uh, you, you learn what your resonators are, um, be more articulate than I am right now. You know, so, I mean, I hope I, I'm impressing upon your listeners. Like it's not just showing up and uh, learning lines and, um, you know, getting accolades. There's a lot of work that goes into being the best of the best. So yeah, the craft stuff, business stuff, that's a little bit more difficult. Um, casting directors are your friends if you're just starting out. Um, you, you know, maybe not, don't worry so much about an agent. Um, if you thinking about going to school, I would say probably don't right now. Um, you don't need that kind of debt. Um, it's one thing, you know, maybe if you go to Yale, they have a bunch of endowments. So it's, it's essentially free, but you can spend that three years in that program, you know, kind of you know, couch crashing around the country, submitting your, your materials to different theaters around the country, around, around your area and getting experience and, and learning from older actors. Um, and just being in shows and being in that environment, um, learn by doing. Um, I mean, I can go on and on, but uh, I do have to go. <laughs> so hopefully at least there, there's some useful nuggets in there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I have to go soon as well, but um, I just want to say Clifton, I really appreciate your time today and it's been just great talking to you. And um, I'm sure all my listeners will, will really appreciate this episode. And I just want to say um, if you don't already follow Clifton, go ahead and subscribe to his YouTube channel. He does some great stuff over there and He's also a fun follow on Twitter. So check that out as well. So thanks a bunch, Clifton. It's been great talking to you. Likewise, CJ. Appreciate it.